Welcome to The Book Collector. Today's podcast is entitled Railway Reading and was written by Alan Wallbank and published in the autumn 1960 issue of The Book Collector. Readers of A Drama in Muslin may remember that George Moore gave to the Barton girls at Brookfield an upstairs sitting room in which there was a stand with shelves filled on one side with railway novels, on the other with worsted work, cardboard boxes and rags of all kinds. A canary cage stood on top. From that upstairs room, where reading matter, unworthy either of the library or the drawing room table, found its home in all the brookfields and lesser country places of the 80s, the railway novels have had a considerable descent. Their temporary home was at first the bookseller's oddment box, the sixpenny jumble stall, or among the servants' effects at country sales. Now, even in these doubtful purlieus, they are far from conspicuous, and so seldom in good state that the Barton girls would barely recognise them. Those myriad yellow books of the railway bookstalls, which were once as common as their descendants, the Pan, Penguin and Pelican series today, have somehow mingled with the dust of time and virtually disappeared. It is therefore an engaging, mildly exciting diversion on one's journeys about the country to try to discover possible copies of some of the books that might have stood together with the worsted work and canary cage on those upstairs shelves. The special difficulties of making a collection of titles from the various railway libraries of fiction in fancy boards at our time of day are threefold. Cheap editions of this sort were in the first place intended to be ephemeral. Read casually and then discarded or passed on, they were not likely to find any permanent home. So the chance of their preservation after nearly three generations is slight. Added to this, the book's structure, and especially the glazed paper of its spine, was not suited to withstand heavy usage. More quickly than most, it would be reduced to material for pulping, so the likelihood of finding early issues in decent condition is even slighter. Finally, once it became rare, the cream of railway fiction was skimmed by four notable collectors to whose standards and enthusiasm one, the late Michael Sadler, is sufficient witness. There are but few chances, then, of overlooked riches. Against these difficulties, however, may be set the special opportunity for a leisurely amateur, for once the main market is virtually closed, competition does not run so high for what goods remain, and in isolated places no doubt quite an amount did remain. In areas where change has been least widespread, and the shifts and disruption of family homes less rapid than in urban districts, or in the smaller, declining coastal resorts once favoured by railway travellers, lay the obvious hunting ground. There it seemed reasonable to expect that among curio shops, lumber rooms and second-hand booksellers, the vanished race of cheap Victorian fiction might reappear. And so it turned out. 
in a Suffolk coast town, whose single-line railway was among the first to be closed, in an Isle of Wight calling place for steamers, in a Dorset market centre, and an East Yorkshire fishing village, in the furniture mart of an old cathedral city, the greenbacks and the yellowbacks came to light in ones and twos. On occasion, an attic storeroom or the back premises of an auctioneer's, once reluctant permission to search had been given, revealed a dozen or more dusty samples that could be restored to brilliance. The first railway station bookstalls of W. H. Smith started to open in 1848. In 1849, Routledge's began their railway library and Fireside Companion, series of reprints selling at one shilling in fancy boards. Bentley's Railway Library at one shilling in paper, two shillings in boards, began in 1851. Chapman and Hall started producing 18-penny reprints of the romances of Harrison Ainsworth in 1852, when Visitelli also brought out their readable books. Another 18-pence series entitled The Run and Read Library for Railway, Road and River came from Simpkin Marshall in 1853. Items from all these series have turned up and in their sage green or orange-brown, cream, lavender or olive-coloured boards overprinted with ornamental designs in red, blue or black are attractive enough, modelled as they were on the older Parlour Library novel. But presently... Beside the yellowback, they were to seem staid and dull. Credit for the yellowback's invention, although this was probably as much chance as design, goes to Edmund Evans, a wood engraver and printer who served his apprenticeship along with Burkett Foster. In 1853, he was experimented with a pictorial cover in three colours, blue, red and white, for a book of Mayhew's called Letters Left at the Pastry Cook's. Finding that the white easily became soiled, Evans decided to print on yellow paper with a varnished or glazed surface. The result was both new and striking. The publishers of the various cheap railway libraries quickly realised its possibilities. Soon the first real picture covers, in yellow and two contrasting colours, began to flood the station bookstalls. The yellow back stood out among its rivals here, and, as the object was to catch the hasty traveller's eye, this was all important, so Evans found himself in great demand. Nowadays you do not often come across a yellowback, dating from those few years before format and colours had acquired a settled pattern, nor its prototype in blue, red and white. My only example of the latter is Horace Smith's Rejected Addresses from Clark and Beaton, with a Rowlandsonian figure on both covers. But I have been fortunate enough to pick up Fenimore Cooper's Deerslayer, issued by Routledge in 1855, with a distinctive cover design and matching spine printed in red and blue over green. It goes well with another example of the experimental phase, Lever's novel, Sir Jasper Carew. The jewelled covers of this were done in ruby red, emerald green, and black on an ivory ground, probably from a design by Crowquill, Alfred Henry Forrester, that is, and the cheap edition here also constitutes a first. Much less elegant and cheaper looking, but with a dramatic scene and figures in yellow, red and green, is a volume of Blackwood's London Library, which ran only from 1855 to 58.
entitled Fair and False, A Romance of Parisian Life, it is fittingly anonymous. Quite apart from publishers' imprints, one can easily see which yellowbacks belong to the best period, that is, the next dozen or so years. Their hallmark is the format. The small size and slender boards, the spine and covers and lettering worked out by one artist, all suggest pride of production. The authentic Evans product can usually be recognised by a small inscription on the lower cover, quote, E. Evans, engraver and printer, Racket Court, Fleet Street. In the 80s and 90s, from which all too many of the items that turn up date, boards became thicker and larger, the spine pattern was standardised for a whole series, while rigid panels for the title and frame for the picture replaced individual treatment. Instead of being a part of the design, or at least carrying a list of companional titles, the back had now all sorts of commercial advertisements. Only the price remained the same, rarely more than two shillings. It was the price, combined with the eye-catching covers and wide range of titles that made the Victorian public buy yellowbacks in such vast numbers. Why pay 31 and sixpence, the regular cost for any new three-volume novel, when you could get 20 volumes of, say, Bulwer-Lytton's romances for the same money? Or, as a contemporary puff puts it, who would be satisfied with a much-thumbed library book when he can procure, in one handsome volume, a celebrated work of fiction for so low a price? The demand attracted by such bargains was kept up by the inclusion of new titles, not reprints, in the cheap lists, and by the great variety of choice. Routledge, for example, advertised no less than 327 titles in a single year in their railway catalogue. Moreover, the employment of well-known artists, Leach, Keane, Fizz, Caldicott, Sturgis, Burkett Foster, Walter Crane on covers, and the addition of illustration sometimes to the text was another draw. It is this that gives to the best period the golden age of the 1860s and early 1870s, much of its fascination for the collector, in spite of Mrs. Oliphant's denigration of the, quote, tawdry, highly coloured covers. How agreeable it is to pick up a copy of Grimaldi's memoirs with its red and black clown against a bright yellow ground on an Evans cover and to find within an engraved portrait of the King of Pantomime and a set of drawings by Cruikshank of scenes from his career. Beside it one may place that comic extravaganda of Mayhew's entitled The Greatest Plague of Life or The Adventures of a Lady in Search of a Good Servant. For this Cruikshank provided a lively cover and a baker's dozen of illustrations. I admire also the croquel pattern of formal arabesques in red and black on the orange-yellow covers and spine of Fabian's Tower by Rosa Kettle, where the whole surface is treated with a full decorative curves typical of mid-Victorian design. One of the reasons for relegating yellowbacks to odd corners upstairs or to servants' basements, where I had found my first, was the cheapening of some productions both in style and materials so that they fall to pieces in the process of reading and sorely try the eyesight, especially of those accustomed to read in railway carriages. Another was the growing sensationalism of some of the lists 
and the persistent streak of lurid or dubious subject matter. Quote, Fiction of the galvanic battery type setting the reader's hair on end and teeth on edge, as Mrs. Oliphant puts it. It would be as well here, then, to mention the several well-marked special lines, both good and bad. The early naval and detective novels were among the most popular series. Such racy yarns as Jack Ashore, Cavendish or The Patrician at Sea, The Flying Dutchman, The Naval Surgeon, and my own favourite, Will Watch, came out in brilliant fancy covers from Clark. At the same time, the formation of the Metropolitan Detective Police Force and its part in several startling cases during the 50s stirred up another widespread interest which writers turned to account. So appeared the forerunners of the detective story proper, factual or fictitious memoirs of police life like Curiosities of Detection, Secret Police, The French Detective Officer's Adventures, and perhaps for a warning against the romance of crime, Recollections of Botany Bay, all these from Warden Locke. Later came Dick Donovan's detective novels and Nat Gould's racing novels from Australia. In contrast to these were the select libraries of fiction such as Chapman and Hall's, in which the publishers tried to keep up a certain standard both in taste and in quality of production. They offered sets of novels by Lever and Lefanu, Anthony Trollope and Henry Kingsley, Mrs. Oliphant and Mrs. Crake, under the caption of The Best Works by the Best Authors. Many of these would be found on the upstairs shelves of the Barton Girls at Brookfield, and among them perhaps Aunt Margaret's Trouble by Francis Trollope in olive green and orange covers with an OG frame to its picture. My own favourite is Can You Forgive Her? with its Rhineland cover scene inset within chocolate borders, price two and sixpence. The quick-selling lines, however, quote, something hot and strong for the journey, were an obvious necessity for this kind of book production. Hence the many seasonal items dealing with events or episodes in life at home and abroad. One can catch an echo of the outcry caused by Irish Republican Brotherhood activities and the Clerkenwell jail explosion, for instance, in a vivid yellowback called The Dynamitards, or enjoy in Dulce Carlian by James Grant a highly coloured account of the Zulu War. Troubles in the sugar plantations form the background of Grant Allen's In All Shades. The humours of Cockney character also inspired a whole series involving the garrulous Mrs. Brown and her ideas on the topics of the day, such as the Tichborne case, the prince's visit to India, and the royal Russian marriage. These were first written by Arthur Sketchley for the magazine Fun, and they cropped up regularly in the lists for 15 years. Life on the other side of the Atlantic was topical material too, and I find entertainment still in Max Adler's Out of the Hurly-Burly, sidelights on American manners with some 400 illustrations in which the humorous artist Arthur Frost makes his first appearance. It was the goings-on of society in London and Paris that brought out the real shockers, raffish men about town and notorious beauties of the boulevard, 
figured there in extravagant frolics that barely exaggerate the facts of Victorian nightlife. In a series published by Vickers, and beginning with Anonyma, or Fair But Frail, there appeared a dozen such suggestive titles as The Beautiful Demon, Delilah, or The Little House in Piccadilly, The Soiled Dove, A Biography of a Pretty Young Lady, Kate Hamilton, the proprietress of a notorious nighthouse, left her home, and Skittles in Paris. The last under a cover designed by Fizz tells part of the remarkable story of a Liverpool slum girl, Catherine Walters, who became the cynosure of the 60s both in Hyde Park and the Bois de Boulogne. At the height of her career, she moved in ducal circles with an equipage befitting an empress, was a familiar of the Prince of Wales, and in old age entertained Mr. Gladstone to tea. Gay life, it seems, was gayer then, like everything else in Grandfather's Day. Collecting railway novels, as will appear, gives one a much broader view of Victorian fiction and amusement, as well as leading into some fascinating byways. It reveals how cheap editions, by swamping the market in their fives or tens of thousands, helped to lower the level of popular literature. Bestsellers like Bulwer-Lytton, Mary Braddon and Ouida were pushed, not the Merediths and George Eliots. Occasionally it throws up some literary curiosity like the novels of Mrs Amanda McKittrick Ross, whose gems of stylistic absurdity in Irene Idsley and Delina Delaney have made her the collector's delight. A yellowback copy of one of these may fetch as much as five pounds. Another prize is the first edition of Mark Twain's A Curious Dream in this format. It adds, besides, a whole gallery of fashions in costume from the picture fronts and an amusing guide to changes in cosmetics from the end papers, as well as quotations from book reviews of the day. Later, indeed, these extras, soap testimonials by Madame Patty, claims for oriental pills and solar elixirs, for pulmonic wafers and Prince Albert Cachou, the earliest colour-plate advertisements of Pear's soap and the publisher's puff, are nearly as rewarding as the text. And how arresting some of the cover pictures are! Even from the floor of a Suffolk curio shop, crammed with lustreware and German glass paintings, my attention was immediately magnetised by that novel of Ouida's, where a gentleman in elaborate evening dress is shown bending over an extremely décolleté lady on a chaise longue, while through the plush-draped windows appears a forlorn female wearily pacing the gaslit streets. What railway reader, even today, could resist that? That was Railway Reading, written by Alan Wallbank and read by James Fleming. If you've enjoyed our podcasts, why not sign up for free access to our entire archive? Just go to info at thebookcollector.co.uk and ask for a login quoting podcast offer. The login is good for five days so you have ample time to explore our nearly 70 years of publishing. To see our subscription rates, 
please go to www.thebookcollector.co.uk. Thank you.